1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for being with us for today's show. Um, There have been concerns um, for a long time about conditions in Georgia's jails and prisons. There have been lawsuits filed about inhumane conditions. There have been outcries by uh, uh, many groups, uh, organizations that have said conditions are deplorable. And so it's the kind of subject that um, we really do need to take up on Political Rewind. But I have to say that for me personally, what really uh, sparked my wanting to do this show right now, saying to Chase McGee and Natalie Mendenhall, let's do it now, was uh, the recent stories about the deaths of two inmates, one in the Fulton County Jail, the other in a state prison. Um, uh, LaShawn Thompson actually died um, last uh, September in the Fulton County Jail. His body was discovered covered with bug bites. The cell was apparently in filthy condition, but what brought it back onto the news again just in the past week is it was only this past week that the sheriff of Fulton County said it's time to make changes, time to clean house, and uh, dismissed the chief jailer and two assistant chief jailers, um, because of the concerns about conditions in uh, the prison. I, I, the notion of what happened to LaShawn Thompson, that we don't know for a fact just why he died, apparently, because Fulton County is withholding that information, uh, but it was horrifying. And then we learn, um, more recently, a 71-year-old prisoner at, at uh, Smith State Prison, Anthony Joseph Zeno, was found... His decomposing body was found, I think, inside his, uh, uh, his bunk. He had been dead for five days. No one paid any attention uh, to it and to exactly what had happened to him. A- and so after those two stories, it seemed absolutely essential that we take on this subject and do it now with some people who have either been very deeply involved in trying to deal with conditions in the prison or have been covering stories about them. And with that in mind, let me introduce our panel. Of course, on Thursdays, Kevin Riley, editor-at-large of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with me. Kevin, clearly this is a subject that you at, at the AJC, we at GPB, we've been covering... Uh, inhumane, deplorable conditions in Georgia's jails and prisons for a long time, but very little seems to change.
2: I would say that's absolutely true, Bill. It just seems like uh, the stories keep coming and nothing, uh, it seems awful hard to get anything done. You mentioned that case at the Fulton County Jail, which has been a long standing situation. And then the uh, mess that uh, is the Georgia prison system has become uh, another headline event in the news. So uh, a great topic uh, for listeners and a complicated one with a a couple of folks with a lot of expertise joining us.
1: Um, we also are going to welcome Grant Blankenship, who is a reporter and editor for GPB News out of our Macon Bureau. I've said many times uh, privately uh, that Grant Blankenship is a simply an outstanding reporter and how lucky we are to have him on our team. And uh, Grant, this is a subject you've covered very closely for a long time.
3: Yeah. Hey, good morning. It is. It is. Um, it, the story you mentioned that was recently in the AJC about the man who'd been dead uh, at Smith State Prison for days before anyone noticed. The very first story I I wrote or produced for the for air here, when when the after the Department of Justice announced their civil rights investigation into the Georgia prison system, was about something very similar. A young man from Macon named Dontavis Mintz uh, died mm. um, in, incarcerated, and his mother was only able to identify him from a single tooth. Um, and the process of just even getting to that point for her to 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 find out what her, what happened to her son was was excruciating. And so, these these issues, while these stories are are in our in our have grabbed our attention this week, this month, the stuff is systemic. It it goes on and on and on. And now we're we're into the second year, I believe, of this uh, Department of Justice investigation, this uh, Eighth Amendment civil rights investigation into Georgia prisons.
1: Um, thank you for being here, Grant, um, uh, to join us on this particular subject. Uh, Tiffany Williams-Roberts is back with us. Um, she's the Director of Public Policy at the Southern Center for Human Rights. And, of course, Tiffany, one of the uh, main focuses of the Southern Center has been and will continue to be uh, dealing with uh, the conditions in Georgia's prisons, how inmates are treated, staffing situations and the like. So this we really get the expertise of your organization on the show. So thanks for being here today.
0: Thank you for having me, Bill. We unfortunately, you know, this has become such a large part of our body of work. And we are the Southern Center for Human Rights and not Civil Rights because we're focusing on what it means to afford dignity to everyone.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I thank you for uh, saying that. Kurt Young is with us. He's a professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. He's also the chair of the uh, political science department. How have you been, Kurt? It's been a while since we've seen you, but we're glad to have you back. Yes,
4: it's, it's, I'm glad to be back. I've been listening, though, so I've been tuning in. I've been hearing hearing uh, a lot of the important discussions, and I want to join in others who are commending you for having this conversation this morning on this topic. This is an important topic. It's not a new topic, uh, but there's a reason that it persists. And so I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: Well, thank you for being here. All right, Tiffany, let me start. Southern Center has been involved in lawsuits uh, focusing on conditions at Georgia prisons. Uh, You've been part of uh, these ongoing civil rights uh, investigations. Why don't you just start us off by giving us kind of a general overview of where do we stand today in terms of the, you know, are there efforts being made to improve conditions at Georgia's prisons? How are the civil rights investigations moving forward? Just give us a starting point for today's conversation.
0: Sure, so what we know is that the investigations of Georgia prisons haven't been um, easy, right? Um, there's not a great deal of transparency or co- cooperation with authorities looking into conditions at jo- in Georgia prisons. Uh, between May 23rd, 2022 and February 3rd, 2023, there were uh, 18, so 169 people who died in um, Georgia prisons, 18 homicides, 25 suicides, 37 undetermined deaths, two accidental deaths, and 87 deaths of natural causes. Um, When we discuss the deaths, the recent deaths, like Mr. Zeno's death, for example, um, the focus has been, and this is the gentleman who would have been dead for at least five days, uh, focuses on prosecuting his cellmate, right? Um, Rather than considering the many, many rules and regulations that should prevent someone from being dead for five days before they are discovered. Uh, we know that uh, Lee-Arendale Prison is downsizing and over the next six to 12 months, uh, many people will be transferred to other women's prisons, uh, but we also are receiving reports about uh, solitary confinement or the tier program in Georgia prisons that keep people in isolation in inhumane conditions, which we know contributes to people decompensating while in, in custody. And those same kinds of violations of human rights norms in our prisons, we see in our jails um, under different names. But the separation from human beings, uh, lack of nutrition, um, lack of supervision, uh, they seem to follow people from pretrial incarceration um, to post-conviction incarceration. And, and, and in many instances, a prison sentence in Georgia can be a death sentence as well.
1: Um. Th- thank you for that. Those are t- terrible Terrible statistics. Tiffany, before we uh, turn to somebody else, do, do you, we know how the deaths in Georgia prisons compare to, say, uh, other states, or uh, are we just dealing with them uh, on their own?
0: Uh, so I do have data around Georgia prisons as compared to the rest of the country. I don't have it in front of me, but I will say, unfortunately, we're comparable to other southern states, which outpace prisons mm-hmm. in many of the other areas in the country.
1: Uh, yeah, I you know, that is something that doesn't surprise me. We'll talk about that. Southern states are in much worse shape when it comes to how they treat their uh, inmates. For Kevin and and then Grant, jump in. Kevin?
2: Yeah, I was going to ask about the southern states thing, but I guess we, we, can, we can wait a, a little bit on that. Um, but, you know, Grant, we were talking about this a little bit before we came on the air about the... You know, how the public reacts to stories you do and stories we do. So why don't you get a flavor for that? Because I think part of this discussion is how do the taxpayers and citizens of Georgia feel about, you know, what's going on in the state prisons?
3: Well, you know, there's kind of a disconnect between, I think, maybe what the average person, uh, how they consume or or think about this issue and what the Constitution declares is right and proper. Um, when it comes to how people are treated in prison, you know the the Eighth Amendment guarantees um, a right for, for us, a, a life free of cruel and unusual punishment. And so, for me, pursuing these stories that's sort of the bedrock, right? That's that that is our shared uh, culture, our shared law. Um, but often, you know, when people hear and read some of these stories, I'm not entirely sure that that the full weight of that is how people is, is part of the context with which people are consuming these stories and so it, it can be a struggle to to tell these stories in ways that make people uh f- it feel the f- full humanity of them right to understand that this is someone's son someone's daughter um, who's who's suffering um in in these institutions so it's hard it's a it's a balancing act um but you know that's why we're here right
1: Grant, um, I, I want to ask you for your overview of how you see things right now. Um, you know, let me let me throw in one thing that Tiffany brought up. She mentioned Arendelle, which is, of course, a state prison for women. And we know mm-hmm. that um, the conditions there have been horrendous. And um, legislators tried, I think it was in 2021, to uh, get a tour of Arendelle State Prison. And they were not allowed go into the prison. Um, so I mean it, it, to me this is just an example of anybody who's looking at any kind of oversight seems to be uh, uh, thwarted unless the lawsuits are involved. But give us your general sense of where we stand right now.
3: Sure well you know Tiffany talked about the the lack of transparency in the, the, the civil rights investigations in the Georgia prisons. Um, this goes so far as to last year um, Georgia Corrections wanted the Department of Justice the federal department of justice to sign a non-disclosure agreement before they could get access to a to a large tranche of of data about how people are treated in our prisons and of course the DOJ said no way although uh, this this happened in Alabama when the DOJ was in Alabama performing a very similar investigation of prison prison conditions there that happened and and some of the same attorneys are representing GDC that represented the Alabama corrections system and they so they went to the same play. They're still fighting that in court. The NDA is not going to happen, but they're, they're still tied up in court just trying to get some basic documentary evidence to be freed up from, from the Georgia Department of Corrections. Um, the prison uh, that the AJC wrote about most recently, Smith State Prison down in, in Tattnall County, that is just the latest, That the, the unfortunate death of Mr. Zeno is just the latest incident in the last two or three months uh, where there have been four or five people stabbed, life flighted out of the, of the prison at a time to, to medical facilities in Savannah. Um, and when these riots, these, these conflicts happen, often they're not quelled by, by guards, right? They're not stopped, they sort of peter out uh, before the guards enter into the, the blocks and, and render aid. And that's because of this, this lack of staffing. Um, The prison population in Georgia stays more or less constant. It dipped during the pandemic a little bit, just because our court system got vapor locked, right? We weren't convicting people. But the number of guards and behavioral counselors just continues to plummet as the number of incarcerated people is relatively static. And really, that's sort of at the heart, I think, of, of the dysfunction. There just aren't enough people to do the jobs that need to be done to keep these facilities safe.
1: Uh, So, Kurt, let's talk about who's impacted uh, primarily by uh, inhumane conditions in our prisons. Um, uh, The Vera Institute, which is an organization that for many years has been working on conditions in prisons, working with uh, incarcerated inmates, uh, they report that while uh, black people make up 30-plus percent, about 32 percent of the population of Georgia, 51% 51% of the people in jails, 60% of the people in prisons are black. So clearly race uh, has a huge uh, role in all of this.
4: I, I, I appreciate you raising that question, Bill. I was thinking about this uh, throughout the conversation this morning. You know, there, there are two types of forces here. There are deep historical forces and there are deep social and the socioeconomic forces. Um, and in both of those contexts, race is a prevailing factor. It's unavoidable. In historical terms, and I think Kevin raised a question, or someone raised a question about the meaning of, of uh, Tiffany's comments and, and other comments regarding the South. Um, the line from the enslavement reality to the explosion of prison populations and the prison industry has been drawn that work has been done by our great sociologists and historians that picture has been painted and it is a to the detriment of our society that we don't pay attention to that social that that, uh sociological research has been done connecting the legacy of slavery to this problem of imprisonment uh we can say more about it but i want to just also touch on the socioeconomic realities um clearly clearly we know that where we find these prison populations exploding, particularly in the areas of race, um, it's often connected to individuals who are of lower socioeconomic status. You have a concentration of persons of African descent, certainly in the South, in that demographic. And so we are seeing the problems flash right in front of our eyes, and it's been unfolding for many, many years. A third problem, though, as it relates to these trends is a current trend where we're seeing a hardening of the society in a reluctance to grapple with these very deep deep and serious problems. And um, I I agree with with Grant's point. Um, You know, when we look at these issues that we just talk about in such painful ways this morning, these these issues are not new. We have been seeing this story over and over. Think about it like this. In 1971, (coughs) at the the uh, famous, I guess, some would say, the infamous Attica prison riots, right? The pr- prison rebellions uh, uh, at Attica State Prison up in in the New York area. And what those inmates were saying was that, in addition to being caught up in the in the um, uh, uh, um, uh, rebellious fervor of the moment, the zeitgeist, uh, you know, where, where 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 political movement was the order of the day, the conditions were so off, awful that it, <laughs> Inmates it mis- it it to the point that they wanted to take control of that. So we can, we there's a whole lot more to say about this bill, but uh, but I appreciate you raising
3: that question. Grant, yeah, and yeah, Kurt, I just you're the through line that you that you raise from from the end of slavery to today, like connecting that to our carceral system. Uh, you know, after after slavery ended, there was the convict lease system, right? And our our prison system as it exists today was created. It, an effort to sort of uh, tighten up the function of the convict lease system. Our first brick-and-mortar prison in Georgia was built in the 30s in Tattnall County because sheriffs were mad that people who who were on the chain gangs would walk away. And so we wanted wanted to tighten that up. And then today, (laughs) in 2023, we still rent out uh, incarcerated people to perform labor in some Georgia cities. There are governments that rent inmates to Uh, for instance, in Muskogee County, pick up trash, right? They do, they pick up your, your household garbage. So, this isn't like an academic exercise, this connection, Uh, you know, this, this is real, and, and it still has echoes today, or not even echoes, like, you know, pounding drums.
2: Kevin. So, here's a question I have, uh, and I think Tiffany, you could probably weigh in here, but Uh, Is this fundamentally a question of money or is it a question of politics or, in other words, um, do we not have enough people working in prisons to make sure they're safe because we don't have the money to pay them? Or is it we're really never going to staff them appropriately because we don't really care that much about whether they're safe? I mean, what is what 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 take would you give average people on what's going on there?
0: I, you know, had this conversation with my mother this morning, and what I said was, prisons were never designed to be humane or to rehabilitate, right? Although we call them corrections facilities, what we see, especially as prisons relate to chattel slavery, is there were they were always warehouses, and they uh, sometimes generated revenue. Um, yesterday, when we we had fifty people speak to United Nations experts about their experiences in jails and prisons. And one of the witnesses talked about the forced labor in Georgia prisons, talked about um, working as firefighters down in Columbus. And then when people are released, not being eligible to be hired as firefighters, though they had done that life-saving work while incarcerated. In the city of Atlanta, um, the Department of Corrections presents uh, regularly to council members, the number, the, the thousands of dollars saved by having free labor to pick up trash and tire waste in their districts. And so I think the dehumanization of poor people, of Black people in the South, really lends itself to the apathy that many people feel when they see people in custody suffering. The LaShawn Thompson story at the Fulton County Jail, we, we obtained that vermin report last fall. We started telling city council and the county commissioners about the lice, the scabies, the bedbugs, and the deaths in Fulton County custody, and the sheriff knew the news story is what now causes people to talk about it, but because by then, Mr. Thompson, before then, Mr. Thompson was just someone who couldn't stop sleeping on Tech's campus and had been arrested too many times, and no one cared that he died. Uh, and it's unfortunate that you know people don't pick up on the dehumanization on the front end of the criminal legal system that lends to itself to the apathy at when the ultimate conclusion of
3: death comes up. So um Um,
1: uh uh,
3: excuse me, Bill. Sorry, just to to your point though, Kevin, about the pay. You're asking about what people get paid. There's been a pay hike for Georgia Corrections officers in the in the last year to forty thousand dollars a year starting pay. I will (laughs) let that float out there um for everyone who's listening to decide whether or not they feel like that's an adequate sum um to work in a prison.
4: And again, we're raising important questions here. This question about the economic dynamics, I mean, this is so so critical. You know, there's a concept that's very popular these days called the prison industrial complex, right? And then there's another concept that's often used in these kind of conversations, which is the the, the school to prison pipeline. Both of these concepts become really, uh, 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 they explode on steroids when you add to it a phenomenon that's been unfolding for, I guess, the last 30 years, which is the privatization of prisons. Now mm-hmm. uh, I know that we wanna, we don't wanna lose sight about these two human beings that lost their lives in, the, in these conditions, so I don't wanna move away from that human story. But we are in a situation now where there is a profit motive assigned to the incarceration of human beings. We have to deal with that. And a profit motive that's driven by the need for corporations to satisfy not a, not a social responsibility or human responsibility, but they, are, they exist to satisfy the profits of their shareholders. And there's a force that plays out in that kind of situation where the raising of uh, of, of the pay, compensation of, of inmate, of, of prison guards and corrections officers, the maintenance of Full-fledged health systems, the maintenance of full sanitation. These are cost factors that contradict the very existence of a corporation's commitment to maintaining profit, more, a profit margin for its shareholders. So, what is the world that we are creating, where this reality of incarceration, which results to the 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 um um um, I'll stop there, Bill, because I know we have a break coming up, but I just want to emphasize that point.
1: Thank you, Kurt. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, we do have to take our first break. As we do, by the way, though, I, I, you know, we've talked about, about the prison industrial complex. Kurt, you started that conversation. And there's an essential book about this by Doug Blackman, um, uh, who won the Pulitzer Prize in 2009 for his book, Slavery by Another Name, The Reenslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. I, it's essential reading for anyone who cares about this subject. So I can't recommend Doug's book uh, any higher uh, higher than to say you have to read it if you want to understand the problem. We'll be back with more in a moment.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your
3: device every weekday afternoon.
1: Kevin Riley, Grant Blankenship, Tiffany Williams-Roberts, and Kurt Young join us for today's Political Rewind. We're talking about uh, conditions. Uh, deplorable conditions in Georgia's jails and prisons, um, which uh, do affect uh, uh, black uh, populations even more than than others, be- because there are simply more black inmates in Georgia's institutions. But whatever race or ethnicity, uh, the people in our prisons are subject to conditions that many say are inhumane. Kevin Riley.
2: Well, I want to come back to Curtis, our political scientist, because um, you know we were we were in a rare political situation during the really the second term of Governor Deal's uh, governorship, right? And we heard so much about about reform and not sending so many people into prison and. Have we lost that momentum? I mean, what is it g- going to take? Because at times this all seems sort of, you know, hopeless. And I know your insights about politics and how this plays politically and whether progress could be made um, are, are something I've depended on in the past. So, what do you think?
4: Well, I, I think in every political system in every jurisdiction whether on and on every level Kevin there's always going to be the visionaries right the individuals who have a have a, a view of how things ought to be and they have a certain sense of responsibility to commit themselves and their individual work to realizing that vision and I, I'm sure because of the intensity of this issue over the years our uh, many of our serious elected officials honestly spend time trying to figure it out and try to unravel this this difficult situation. But those powerful forces that are at play, and I don't mean this in some kind of conspiratorial way, they are driving forces that exist at the societal level that disrupt and undermine the, the best intentions of us individually, and so what it re, uh, of our elected officials individually. And so what it requires is, number one, a significant paradigm shift that a society has to go through if a society is gonna to continue to progress. And looking at the directions that we uh, seem to be taking as a society, Right now, I'm not sure that I'm seeing that kind of a shift taking place. But it also requires an an effort to deal honestly and truthfully with the situation. And unfortunately, as I think I'm hearing Grant saying, this our society is very comfortable with throwing away the locking them up and throwing away the key, and and not seeing this problem as a major problem. Well, I I I think.
1: I'm so, I'm sorry, Kurt. I didn't mean to interrupt you. At the other, mm-hmm. I I think it's clear that Governor Kemp has decided to move in a completely different direction than Nathan Deal did. In fact, uh, he has just signed uh, the bills, uh, which in fact are kind of get tougher on crime measures in the state, including crackdowns on gangs and the like. So I don't think there's a whole lot of question. Nor do I think Governor Kemp would apologize for deciding that it's time to move in a different direction than Nathan Deal did. Tiffany, um, if I may, let let me turn to you, because I want to go back to this issue of where we stand. And Grant, I know you can help uh, illuminate this as well. In terms of efforts to turn things around, help me understand a lawsuit that the Southern Center for Human Rights filed back in 2021 and your own uh, uh, release, news release on that suit says this. Lawsuit challenges inhuman conditions of confinement at Georgia State Prison. And it goes on to say that between September 2019, May 2021, at least 12 people died by suicide at GSP. You You point out at GSP, people are kept in solitary confinement for months or years, held in segregation cells. Designed to isolate people by depriving them of sensory stimuli, people. Um, there are conditions that you your suit calls repulsive. Rats and roaches crawl on people while they while they sleep, uh, crawl in their food. Many cells have no power. Defective plumbing. It just goes on and on. And it's tell us about that. Where did what's happened with that lawsuit? Um, that you can help us understand now.
0: Uh, well, so as you mentioned, the lawsuit addressed the Tier two program um, in Georgia State Prison. and we, um, you know, we monitor jails and prisons on a regular basis and get reports from family members about conditions that are concerning. Um, the lawsuit right now is still pending. I the 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 issue continues to be what the immediate remedial efforts can be to provide relief to people right now um it the georgia's uh board of um, prisons uh is is spending a lot of time talking about how to acquire or build new prisons and it doesn't appear to be enough attention being paid both to staffing Right. So there is a staffing failure across the country when it comes to corrections officers, but immediate remedial measures, because we continue to receive really abysmal reports, not just from this facility, but from facilities all over the state of Georgia about not only the confinement, but things like um, no blankets, leaks, people soaking up sewage with, with their blankets, you know, um, on a regular basis. And we, those conditions are mimicked in our jails right now as well, in part due to staffing, um, and another due to focusing on building new shiny jails and not focusing on the people who are currently in custody.
3: Yeah. And it's probably no mistake, Tiffany, that that Georgia State Prison is now closed, right? It's been been retired. They used to call it the Alcatraz of the Piney Woods. It's the oldest prison in the system. (laughs) Um, And it looks like Alcatraz. If you've ever been to Alcatraz and you're walking the blocks of Alcatraz, that's what it looks like inside Georgia State Prison it's closed. And Tiffany's right. The, the The Department of Corrections, their strategy going forward, the way, the way they are planning on rectifying this, as far as we can tell from the outside, is spending $600 million on a new state-of-the-art prison. What does state-of-the-art mean? It means they hope to design into it uh, things that cripple cell phones. Uh, cell phones are important for, on the one hand, getting out information about um, the injustices when they're committed inside the prison walls, but they also destabilize the security of prisons. GDC is very anxious to end that. And uh yeah, there's there there really aren't um as as she says any any moves for intermediate steps. The, the they're going all in on new facilities that will require fewer staff to run and which will end some of the technological destabilization they perceive as being at the root of their problems. Grant while um,
0: well the thing? ball's in oh, your go ahead.
3: Yeah, go
1: ahead. No, go ahead, Tiffany, please.
0: And just to know, if you looked at uh, the press around Mr. T- uh, LaShawn Thompson's death in Fulton County, um, the sheriff got several million dollars for remedial steps, but it was the same kind of thing. New technology to detect narcotics in mail, um, new scanners and these sorts of things that have nothing to do with the culture within the Fulton County Jail from the officers. So it's often jail conditions, cases, and litigation and advocacy can just lead to a windfall of money for jailers, for for things that really don't address the conditions of the people in those facilities.
1: Um, Grant, let me come back to you. At the very beginning of the show, I thought Kevin Riley made an observation and asked you a question that's really important. How do people do people care out there? Does the general public, do Georgians care about conditions in Georgia's jails and prisons? And in, in you suggested it's hard to focus attention that uh, mobilizes people, even if it's nothing more than starting to feel deeply uh, rather than take actual action. And it's always storytelling, I think, and talking about individuals and the impact on their lives that can move the needle a bit. And, and, and I mention all that because you... Interviewed Narissa Wright. You mentioned her son earlier. You mentioned her earlier in the show. Uh, her son is it Don'tavis? T- Don is that how he pronounced his first name? Don'tavis Mintz Don Tavis. was uh, Don'tavis
3: Mintz. Yeah, he
1: died in prison, and his mother uh, didn't know how long was it before she knew. And tell me about your conversation with her for the story you did on, on that uh, particular incident?
3: Sure, uh, she raised all the questions I think um, the DOJ is probably asking of, of corrections. She said, if my son was dead as long as we think he was now, and this was all that was left of him for me to, to bury, who were the people who came around and did the checks in the prison? Where were the guards whose job it was to ensure my son's safety? Um, why is no one holding the system to account when these things happen? Those are the questions she asked two years ago. And I think those are the bedrock questions that we can't turn our eyes from. Those, those are the fundamental questions. Uh, you ask about how this has been received, how you, how you tell this story for a general audience. Well, we have lots of audiences and I can tell you, um, the audience of people who have loved ones who are incarcerated have been very receptive to this storytelling, um, uh, which is heartening that that's the sort of thing that as a journalist sort of gives you the sense that you're, you're doing right by somebody, um, because I feel like they're being heard to or heard from, listened to. Um, but then I am aware that there's another audience for whom this is not their day to day reality. They don't have loved ones in prison. They have to be convinced that this is something they have to fold into the other litany of worries they have in their day to day. But look, I mean, at the the end of the day, this is public safety. This does affect all of us and the communities we live in. People, they don't stay in prison forever. And when they do leave prison, um, they're going to be our neighbors again. And so, you know, we, we, we all have an interest in making sure these systems run in a humane way so that we can we can all live. We can all live together. So as I said before, we do our best, right? And what
2: I would add to that, I think Grant makes a great point. Um and I would I would mention we did a series of stories um not too long ago about how uh dysfunctional the healthcare system in, in the case that we investigated in women's prisons was and how Literally, like nine women died at the hands of an incompetent doctor. Um, And I was really inspired by the reaction we got to that story. We heard a lot from the public. There was reaction, uh, there, there was a lot of attention paid to it. I mean, again, I don't think it solved the huge problems that we were talking about here, but I do think that we have a responsibility in the media to bring these stories to light. And I, the reason that I was inspired by that reaction was that, you know, I always have that question whether average Georgians uh, will care about about this kind of thing. And I think all people care about people who are vulnerable and who are mistreated by a what appears to be an uncaring and heartless bureaucracy. And I really think that's what Tiffany's organization is trying to point out that, look, we understand that they're, they're, we have a society in which some things, uh, at times it's necessary to incarcerate people, but it is not necessarily to neglect and mistreat them.
1: T- Tiffany, I want to ask you a question based on what Kevin's talking about, and then Kurt, get you back in as well. Um, Kevin talked about medical care uh, at Arendelle, the women's prison specifically, but the lack of decent medical care across the system has been severely wanting for a long time. And we've seen story after story about that. Yes.
0: Yes. And uh, much of much of this has to do with um, the privatization of health care within our correctional facilities as well as an elect, a level of apathy when those facilities are state run. So an example is NASCARE is a, a, a health care provider that's in many, many jails. Um, and now in Fulton County, uh, they're saying that they're ending the Care contract because that they should have discovered Mr. Thompson's death. Well, uh, what we know is that because of the staffing issues at the Fulton County Jail, medical staff has trouble Getting onto the floors to care for people, just as the plumbing vendors have trouble getting onto the floors to stop the leaks that are causing people to become ill. And so, medical the the care of people who with significant medical needs and behavioral health needs um, they are really important, but they are often neglected and directly impacted by staffing failures and, and management failures from the government who are charged with um, the people who are in the care of their facilities or in their facilities.
1: Kurt, um, go ahead. No, no, I was just
4: going re- reiterate, to reiterate a previous point. And, you know, if you have a society or a political culture that wants to uh, be tough on crime and lock up, lock up the criminals, you know, no discussion. And then there's also a discussion in, in that same society where we're going to make a very clear moral decision about where we're going to spend the precious dollars that we have and not dedicate those dollars to these very same individuals who we're going to lock up and throw away the key, then you're going to have understaffing, you're going to have poor training. You're going to have uh, awful conditions. And and, and we just have to come to terms with that contradiction. You know, we just have to deal with it. and, And it frustrates me if I can just, you know, reveal myself a little bit. It frustrates me to hear uh, many of our, uh, our elected officials dance around the, 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 the core contradiction here, right? Uh, as if we don't understand why staffing continue, understaffing continues, why poor services just can't be uh, uh, can't be addressed. Uh, um, we just have to be honest about what, what we're dealing with and the fact that this reality is something that we've created.
1: All right, Kurt Young gets the final word in this segment of political rewind. We've got to get to our last break. We'll do that and be back with more in just a moment. We're talking about the state of Georgia, jails and prisons on Political Rewind uh, today. When I was preparing for this show, I, let me tell you what I thought about. Um, I thought about Crime and Punishment, the, the, one of the great, great novels of literature uh, by Fyodor Dostoevsky about a young student named Raskolnikov, Raskolnikov, who for no reason really other than to see if he can do it, murders an old woman. He's consumed with guilt. He's tracked down and uh, uh, arrested. And it occurred to me, if anybody deserved prison, it was uh, Raskolnikov uh, for the horrendous act that he committed. But you know what Dostoevsky is famous for having said? He said, quote, a society should be judged not by how it treats its outstanding citizens, but by how it treats its criminals. Uh, And Kevin, that's exactly what we're talking about on Political Rewind today.
2: Right. I mean, this this discussion goes on and on, as I think we've all we've all pointed out. And I mean, the, the current discussion is Fulton County needs a new jail. <laughs> right. And the price tag is two billion dollars. I mean, let's think about that for a second. Now, I know that our panelists will all have a, a point of view on whether the county really needs a new jail or if the problems are different. But we the Fulton County Jail has been in the news since I came to Atlanta uh, well over 12 years ago.
1: Tiffany, let me ask you about jails versus prisons, specifically in the context of the Fulton County Jail. Uh, In many, many cases, county jails are pre-detention centers where inmates are held before they stand trial. If they're found guilty, they're sent to the state's prisons. Now, during COVID, we know that the courts became so backlogged that they couldn't process people out of those pre-detention centers, get them into courts. So to what extent do the conditions in our county jails, uh, how how have the uh, bad conditions been exacerbated by the overload of uh, inmates?
0: Well, um, what's interesting is during COVID, many, many facilities depopulated their jails by expediting releases, uh, pursuant to orders from Superior Court judges Fulton and this includes Cobb Cobb's population might have dropped by like 30 40 percent uh Fulton made the decision to to stop to not do that um, when we talk about backlog 46 as of September of last year 46 percent of the people in the Fulton County Jail for felony cases were unindicted and we could say that has and that means not formally charged. We could say that has to do with a uh, 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 with backlog, but it also has to do with a lack of efficiency and a lack of care. Fulton County Jail is, was overcrowded before COVID and we sent a threat to sue letter over the overcrowding in 2019. Um, There is a deliberate indifference when it comes to the way that Fulton County outpaces other urban counties with respect to incarceration. Fulton sends more people to Georgia prisons than any other county in the state, and it doesn't seem to mind it much. And so it is as much about uh, politics in the courtrooms as it is. Uh, which has to do with police as the gatekeepers of the criminal legal system. Um, All of those systems are responsible for the numbers that we see in Fulton. And so there's got to be broad change across the continuum in this system. If Fulton can build three, $2 billion jails, it will not matter. They will fill every single one of them because the politics in our courtrooms and on our streets are not changing.
4: Kurt. Yes. Your question and Tiffany's response, I mean, it, it, it's so important. You, you, In fact, if if I can just a- ask you to add an item to your uh, required reading, and actually it's a documentary about the Khalil Browder. I think the title of the documentary is, is like about the Khalil Browder story. And it, oh, it's exactly this problem about the pre-incarceration. And I like the term, Tiffany, indifference um, that occurs and, and the, the, the human cost that comes from that. Uh, I think that's really required viewing for our audience who find
1: this discussion uh, compelling. Uh, uh, Kurt, before I throw it to Grant, uh, make sure we have the name of that documentary. Chase will uh, put it into our social media uh, today so people can check out what you're talking about. Grant?
3: Yeah, I, I just wanted to point out, you know, that the governor just signed into law a um, Yesterday, a bill that establishes new mandatory minimums for gang-related crimes, and in, in, there are places in Georgia where prosecutors have been executing a lot of discretion and who heretofore who they've been prosecuting and how they've been prosecuting them. And I'm going to be really, really interested to watch the way um, some of those, <coughs> those DAs, how their hands might be forced um, into prosecutions based on this new law that establishes a, a sentence of at least 10 years, you know, up to 20. I think it was for for people who are convicted of, of like recruiting people into gangs or being the ringleader of a gang-related crime. It's there's there's less wiggle room today uh, when it comes when in terms of local control than there was yesterday in terms of local control about how we're going to fill up our jails and these pre-trial settings.
1: Kevin, do you want to
2: jump in? Yeah, you know, I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask this question, and I'm going to, I'll direct it at Tiffany. So you talked about what went on during the pandemic and Fulton's jail and the culture in Fulton courts. But, you know, the other side of that and something, you know, we obviously hear a lot about as we try to report the news is that, wow, there are too many uh, people who ought to be in jail in Fulton. And there was this terrible increase in crime and the judges are releasing people, um, instead of keeping them incarcerated when they're dangerous and all of that. I mean, to average people, it just seems like there are two different stories of what's going on. How, I mean, what would you say to people who who see it that way?
0: Well, I think that some of the reason that people see it that way is because there's a misunderstanding about the purpose of cash bail. So if a judge gives someone a bail amount, that means that the judge has decided that that person is not dangerous, right? But what we see in practice is high bail amounts are assigned to people that community says or the society says we should be afraid of. But constitutionally, if they are too dangerous to be released, a judge is not supposed to give them a cash bail or a bail of any kind, right? So what we see is um, political leveraging of the constitutional right against excessive bail to tell to threaten judges to hold people in Fulton who could otherwise be released which actually make public safety outcomes worse so the longer you incarcerate people pre trial actually the less safe communities are and we are saying that people should not be afforded the presumption of innocence we told uh, at the city of Atlanta and Fulton County that after the pandemic crime rates would, would go down that happened across the country, right? It did in fact happen. And so um, gun violence remains a problem here in the city, but the mayor's office had $5 million of gun intervention or violence intervention money to spend, which it chose not to spend. The the, the, almost the sole response to harm in our communities has been jails and prisons, and we haven't seen better outcomes. And there is research on that, but communications-wise, it's easy to message about bad, dangerous people who we should hold in jail. But what we'll continue to see is deterioration within our corrections facilities as well as in our communities because it's an inefe- ineffective response.
3: Grant, yeah, I, I I would just want to come back to Kevin's idea of who this average person is. Um, I, I I want to take in an idea of the average person who maybe has a more nuanced view of crime and probably understands that they actually in 2023 aren't statistically more likely to experience crime than they were 20, 30 years ago, because that's true. Uh, despite what we know about homicide rates, I'm not gonna dispute that gun homicides are an incredibly important issue and they're epidemic here where I live in Macon. But I think we have to, we have to be a little more sober uh, in our conversations about these issues um, and less panicked. Um, if we want to come up with actionable new methodologies to making a difference.
1: You know, um, Grant Blankenship, I appreciate those comments because it's a perfect way to end today's show. We've just about run out of time for this conversation, a more sober look and understanding of where we stand with our jails and prisons today and how we deal with people who are incarcerated Um, On the show today, we've offered you sort of some homework. You know, uh, uh, read Doug Blackman's uh, book. Kurt talked about a documentary. Uh, You might want to read Crime and Punishment, but I'll add one more. Ava DuVernay, the great filmmaker, uh, has a documentary called 13th, which was nominated for an Academy Award. And in that film, she talks about the criminalization of African-Americans and the U.S. prison boom and The Prison Industrial Complex. It is an incredibly powerful uh, film, and I would really highly recommend it. All right, we are out of time for today's show. Tiffany William Roberts, Grant Blankenship, Kurt Young, Kevin Riley. thank you for a truly meaningful conversation on a subject of great importance to all of us in Georgia. We'll be back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and please be good to one another. Bye, everybody.